Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Cultural Affairs, the Florida Council of Arts and Culture, and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund, the Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, and by Florida's Space Coast Office of Tourism, representing destinations from Titusville to Cocoa Beach to Melbourne Beach. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Broatmarkle, and coming up on the program, the site of the 1559 settlement of Don Tristan de Luna has remained a mystery for more than four and a half centuries. Archaeologists have now discovered the attempted colony in a Pensacola neighborhood. The initial artifact that I found was what's called an olive jar. It was a fragment of a neck from an olive jar. These are large ceramic storage jars for food, and they're, they're very, very common, one of the most common artifacts on Spanish colonial sites. We'll discuss some of Florida's first laws from 1845. And if you uh, just open up any random page and, and start reading some of the state statutes, if we look at it now 170 years later, uh, it can seem humorous, uh, to say the least and the 1968 Constitution of Florida. All that ahead on Florida Frontiers. On August 15, 1559, Spanish conquistador Don Tristan de Luna sailed into what is now Pensacola Bay, leading a fleet of 12 ships with 1,500 colonists on board. Their effort to establish a permanent settlement was thwarted by a violent hurricane which devastated the fleet. One of the shipwrecks was discovered by underwater archaeologists in 1992 and another in 2006, but until recently the terrestrial site of the attempted Luna settlement remained a mystery. Greg Cook is assistant professor of maritime archaeology at the University of West Florida. We're fortunate that we have a letter that Luna wrote after the hurricane to the King of Spain describing the storm. And he said it raged for 24 hours, it uh, hit during the night with great loss of ships and lives and, and property. And we know that many of their supplies were destroyed and um, up to seven of these vessels were, were, were sunk as a result of that hurricane. The Emanuel Point 1 and Emanuel Point 2 shipwrecks continue to provide archaeologists and archaeology students the opportunity to discover artifacts such as stone cannonballs, copper arrow tips to be used with crossbows, ceramics including olive jars, and the bones of livestock, rats, and pet cats. John Bratton is chair of the University of West Florida Anthropology Department. As we stand on a barge in Pensacola Bay that is positioned above the Emanuel Point II shipwreck, Bratton shows us some of the fascinating artifacts recovered here. When this wreck was discovered in 2006, one of the first things that we uncovered was a piece of lead sheathing uh, like this which was really exciting because this is the type of material that they used in the 16th century on the Spanish shipwrecks. And so these long strips of lead were tacked with, with iron tack holes over the seams of the ship to keep the caulking in place like that. 
So we'd already been working for years on the first Emanuel Point shipwreck, and so when we started finding very similar artifacts of that, we were quickly able to you know, say with confidence that this was the second ship from Luna's fleet. And so we find a variety of things like that as well. And then we find um, a lot of ceramics. Um, and most of these are broken ceramics, but they're 16th century type ceramics and they're, they're Spanish. And so uh, we find large pieces sometimes. And uh, so this is a, uh, what we call olive jar, but they're big storage jars uh, from the time period. This particular one's interesting because the inside is coated with uh, a resin here. The Spanish called it Pez. It's actually pine pitch. And we know that this was used on any of these big jars that they carried liquids in. So they're called olive jars for good reason because they carried olives, but they carried olive oil. They put wine in them as well. They could carry water. And uh, so we find hundreds and hundreds of these fragments of olive jar. This is one of the, the rims to an olive jar, and so to seal these off, then a cork, and we found the corks as well that would have been placed in the neck of the jars. And then typical from that time period, this, if you can imagine coming out, this is a big flat bottom serving bowl called a bassine with this beautiful lead uh, green glaze that still, you know, survives quite well to today. This is an esquidilla, which is, it's a little uh, bowl uh, that the Spanish would have used for eating stuff like this. It's a type we call Isabella polychrome. You can still see the faint remains of what would have been blue lines on a white background would have been really pretty at the time. Um, you know, for food remains, we find uh, animal bones. Uh, we found cow, pig, sheep, or goat. We found chicken bones. And uh, quite surprisingly, uh, a couple of the vertebrae that we found were identified as from a cat. And so we know there were rats on board and there were also mice on board. We've identified those, but obviously they had a ship's cat. And uh, one of the interesting things is, you know, if a captain preferred a dog or a cat, and is this the first, you know, was this cat carried from Spain? So we've actually sent the vertebrae of that cat, ver uh, the bone, to Brussels, Belgium, to the Ancient Cat DNA Project. And they're gonna try to extract the DNA from us and tell us more about that cat. So I'm kind of excited about that. We expect to find certain artifacts like the ceramics and such like that. And even when we find this is a stone cannonball, and this was hand pecked out of limestone. And between the two wrecks, the manual point one and manual point two, we've probably found about 20 of these so far. We don't have the cannons. The, can the cannons were salvaged by the Spanish, but we do have lots of the different types of ammunition. So we know what type of weapons were on board. But what I really like and get excited about are the items that kind of have a personal touch that tell, you know, there's something about the story. And so uh, this is, you know, a wooden spoon, but it's probably made out of olive wood. But this would have been a sailor's very likely personal spoon that he carried with him that he would use to eat. They didn't have forks and they probably had a knife and a spoon and that's what they did. Um, I would have loved it if he would have put his initials in it, but he didn't put his initials in this one. And, and this is one that I like to, to talk about as well because, you know, obviously it's a brick. It's a Spanish brick called a ladrillo. But what I really like about this brick is it has a thumbprint in it. And you can see exactly when this brick was still soft, a Spaniard or someone in Mexico, anyways, picked this brick up and left his mark in that. So I appreciate things like that as well. While the Luna shipwrecks have yielded fascinating artifacts for decades, it wasn't until last fall that the exact location of the oldest multi-year European settlement in the United States was discovered in a Pensacola neighborhood. Former UWF archaeology student Tom Garner was driving through the neighborhood when he saw a cleared lot where a house had been torn down.
For 30 years, Garner made a practice of investigating such sites just to see if any artifacts might have been uncovered. This time, Garner's curiosity was rewarded. The initial artifact that I found was what's called an olive jar. It was a fragment of a neck from an olive jar. These are large ceramic storage jars for food, and they're, they're very, very common, one of the most common artifacts on Spanish colonial sites. And I understood that that could potentially be Luna. We're, we're you know, in a nice spot close to the shipwrecks, um, but olive jars also go you know, as late as maybe 1800 or so, so it wasn't necessarily Luna. I contacted um, someone I knew at the University of West Florida Archaeology Department, and um, she got in touch with the archaeologists, and they came and confirmed what it was. This summer, professional archaeologists and archaeology students have been working at selected sites throughout the Pensacola neighborhood, excavating artifacts from the Luna settlement. Elizabeth Benchley is director of the UWF Archaeology Institute. We're finding broken pots is the main thing, that they brought their supplies in jars and in barrels, the wood from the barrels would have rotted away. Uh, we might expect to find metal bands, iron bands that secured the barrels, but so far we haven't found any barrel bands. But we found lots of broken pots, and a lot of these are large containers that were used to store and ship liquids like olive oil, wine, vinegar, water, um, and those pottery vessels break easily if you drop them and shatter into pieces that never dissolve. They, they're always there. So we're finding a lot of broken olive jars is what we refer to the vessel, vessel shape as. They also brought um, plates that were typical of the era that they would have served off of, and those have a typical uh, tin glaze on them. They're white colored plates called Columbia Plain, and we're finding those here and there on the settlement, but not nearly as frequently as the olive jars. They also used uh, coarse earthenware vessels that were made out of a red clay and had a lead glaze on them, and we're finding fragments of those vessels around. What we hope to be able to find are areas where different segments of the colony, there were 1,500 people, we hope to be able to find areas where different groups lived together after the hurricane. So we would expect that the single soldiers might have camped out together and eaten together. We would expect that the families that were here would have been units that lived together. Uh, Luna brought Mexican Indians with him that we refer to as Aztecs. And so we'd like to see if the Aztecs were integrated into the Spanish community or if they had their own separate area where they lived. But we're way far away from being able to see that. We haven't found the boundaries of the site yet, we're still trying to find the edges of where these artifacts are distributed. As artifacts are meticulously uncovered by archaeologists and archaeology students at the Luna Settlement site, they are brought to a rented house that is serving as an on-site archaeology lab. Jan Lloyd is the UWF Archaeology Institute lab director. She talks with us as a group of volunteer workers is seated around tables in what was formerly a living room, sorting through small pieces of various collected materials. We are taking the bags of artifacts that have been excavated, bagged very carefully and marked, and um, we're taking those bags of artifacts and rough sorting them. In other words, we're getting out the dirt. We are uh, sorting the artifacts into different types 
of material, like we'll make a pile of glass, we'll make a pile of 16th century ceramics, we'll make a pile of brick, we'll make a pile of rocks. And um, then we'll bag those individually. These rough sorted materials will go back to my lab and the trained UWF lab crew will work through each bag and work down to identify each and every artifact that's in those bags. After the 1559 hurricane, life was very difficult for the Luna colonists. The settlement was abandoned in 1561. John Wirth is an associate anthropology professor at the University of West Florida. The fleet originally entered the bay in mid-August. Um, they presumably searched around and eventually found the perfect spot where they wanted to set up this first town, which would eventually have, in theory, about 100 families residing here. And they spent the next five weeks probably clearing the forest and beginning to set up uh, streets and house lots, build structures. They kept all of their important food on the ships, which of course was the safest spot until they built on land. So this was all ongoing and they were of course in the process of establishing this settlement when a massive, I mean based on what we know, it was a really massive major hurricane came in from the east and absolutely devastated the fleet. There were 10 ships still at anchor at the bay. Of that fleet, seven were destroyed. Six went down in the water somewhere offshore here. Another was pushed inland. And all that was left were three ships. And as a result, they lost the vast majority of their surplus food. And they had mouths to feed. They had 1,500 people in a, a village that hasn't even yet at that time been fully constructed. They were without food. They were without local Indians to borrow or buy food from. And they were in really dire straits. And they furthermore didn't have more than three ships afloat. And they sent one back to Veracruz to tell the Viceroy, send help. They sent another two back to Havana so that they could eventually pick up supplies and bring them back. But from that moment onward, the Luna expedition was transformed from uh, an exploratory venture, you know, the establishment of a colony, to essentially a, a rescue mission. The Viceroy wanted to keep the expedition moving and didn't want to retreat, but the colonists who were here were really in bad shape. And so the rest of the expedition is all about keeping them alive despite great odds. And the squabbles between leadership and settlers eventually got sort of reached a crisis point. Worth is hoping that as archaeology continues at the site, trash pits will be discovered that could provide evidence about how the colonists survived for two years. The exact location of the Luna settlement is being protected for now, but the archaeology work is difficult to miss if you drive through the neighborhood. Carefully dug trenches are apparent in the yards of residential properties. Tom Garner is serving as neighborhood liaison for the excavation. The response in the neighborhood has been beyond our wildest dreams. People are thrilled, they're excited, they're granting us access to their properties. And you've got to understand, Tristan de Luna is this mythical figure in Pensacola. And so to find this site is really quite a big deal. And people are, are thrilled to death to be part of this project. The response has been tremendous. There's some bragging going on these days about living in the oldest neighborhood in the United States and so forth. So they've got some bragging rights. It's just been wonderful, just been wonderful. It's expected that excavations will continue at the Luna Settlement site for many years to come.
This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Visit us on the web at myfloridahistory.org to listen to archived editions of this program, watch past episodes of our television series, Florida Frontiers, and read our weekly Florida Frontiers blog. While you're there, you can find out about upcoming events and subscribe to our journal, the Florida Historical Quarterly. That's myfloridahistory.org. Joining us now is Ben DiBiase, Director of Educational Resources for the Florida Historical Society and Archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. Ben, when Florida was first named a state in 1845, I guess one of the first orders of business was to establish some laws. Yeah, that's right. And uh, statehood occurred on March 3rd, 1845. U.S. Congress uh, admitted Florida as well as Iowa, Florida becoming the 27th state into the United States of America. And you're right, they really had to get down to business at that point. So Florida had been broken up into two territories for almost 20 years, both East and West Florida, after the adams onis Treaty of 1821, which ceded the Floridas to the United States from Spain. Now, there were a lot of issues uh, at hand, and the state government or the state legislative council had to deal with a lot of these issues. So after March 3rd, one of the first orders of business was, of course, creating laws, but they had to elect officials who would create those laws. So the first statewide election occurred in May of 1845. And in June, the first state governor was inaugurated. His name was William Dunn Mosley. And William Mosley, then in accordance with the state constitution, uh, which says, quote, a digest of laws of this state shall be formed and arranged, which shall include substantially all acts and resolutions of the territorial legislature heretofore passed. Unquote. So essentially, he was uh, mandated to create a commission that would review all laws of the territory and figure out which ones they were going to throw out and which laws they would include into the new form state of Florida. Now, one of the first provisions uh, enacted allowed for all territorial laws to initially be admitted into state laws. And then this commission would go through with kind of a fine-tooth comb and start parsing out uh, what they thought was superfluous or, or could be omitted or laws that needed to be changed to become aligned with the U.S. Constitution, because that was a big part of becoming part of the Union. Your state constitution and laws had to reflect the laws of the United States government. Now, we're looking at what is obviously a very old publication. Is this an original bound copy of these first state laws of Florida? Yes, it is. And this is one of the really interesting books that's part of the rare book collection of the Florida Historical Society. This is one of only 1,500 original copies of the digest of the statute laws of the state of Florida that we're looking at today. You can see it's in its original binding. Uh, unfortunately, it's seen better days. It looks about the size of, of kind of a standard book with a, a leather-bound covers, and some of the pages are stained. You can see some foxing and molding, but most of the content is still legible and we can read quite a bit. And if you uh, just open up any random page and, and start reading some of the state statutes, if we look at it now 170 years later, uh, it can seem humorous, uh, to say the least. Uh, in fact, we'll look at one here. 
This is uh, Chapter 7 under County Organization Law, uh, and it states, quote, that it shall be and may be lawful for any persons or persons killing any wolf, bear, tiger, panther within the state on producing the scalp or scalps of either to be compensated for said scalp. So here we have, this is part of uh, the state laws. It was, uh, there was an incentive for individuals to kill predatory animals within the state. Now, the the thinking at that time being they wanted to uh, convert as much as the usable land into agricultural purposes uh, or to be used for agricultural purposes. And they felt like uh, these wild animals were more impediments than they were part of the biodiversity of the state. Now, there's an entire section of this lengthy set of laws that's specifically targeting the, the black population of the state. That's right. It's important to remember that in March of 1845 that Florida was admitted into the Union as a slave state. And that was one of the big reasons that proponents of uh, statehood pushed for the U.S. Congress to admit the state into the Union so that Florida would have more congressional representation uh, and be able to fight for the institution of slavery or the maintenance, at least, of the institution of slavery, which at this time in U.S. history was seriously coming into uh, contention. There were a lot of uh, abolitionists and there were massive abolitionist movements within the United States. So there was kind of a a slow erosion, at least, of the institution and the state of Florida, uh, at least the large, wealthy uh, landowning planters who were in charge of most of the state government, um, wanted to preserve that institution. Uh, And now there are almost 20 pages dedicated to uh, laws pertaining to the institution of slavery. And most of those deal with the prosecution of crimes uh, that slaves would commit against free white persons. Now, it's interesting, too, to note that there is a provision here in Section 1 under slaves and free persons of color about manumission. Now, manumission is the act of freeing one slave. A slave owner could uh, free one slave, and they were legally, at least under U.S. law, able to do so. But the state of Florida uh, mandated here under Section 2 Uh, that you would be fined $200 for each slave that you manumitted or you freed. So there was an incentive to keep people enslaved into perpetuity. And anyone who was a free person of color coming into the state at any time within the state of Florida, they could be apprehended by any person, taken into custody, and if the state at least deemed that they could not prove they were uh, in fact free, they could be sold back into slavery for a period no less than five years. So again, the institution, a heinous institution, was very, very strong in the state of Florida. And this digest of state laws reflects that that institution was going to stay at least until 1861 when we have the Civil War to finally solve that issue. Well, this is a fascinating document with a lot of interesting laws. We'll have to talk about it uh, again at another time. Thanks, Ben. Sure, thank you. Ben DiBiase is Director of Educational Resources for the Florida Historical Society and Archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. This is Florida Frontiers. We were just talking about some of the first laws in Florida. As Robert Casanello from robertcasanello.com reports, in 1968, the state took a new look at our Constitution. The new Constitution, uh, the first efforts to change it really started in the late 40s. The Florida Bar kept putting forth new draft constitutions, and it would submit them to the legislature, and the legislature would ignore them. That was Mary Atkins, author of the book, Making Modern Florida, How the Spirit of Reform Shaped a New State Constitution. 
She spoke to me about the 1968 Constitution and the 20-year process it took to bring the current Florida Constitution to fruition. Before 1968, Florida was governed by the 1885 Constitution, when Florida was still a frontier and mostly rural state for all practical purposes. Florida was not a state with any urban growth to speak of in the 1880 census. In fact, Leon County was the largest county with little over 19,000 residents, and the 1885 Constitution reflected that. In a rapidly growing state like Florida was in the mid-century after World War II, this simply was not enough to keep up with the times or the budget. The legislature only met for 60 days every two years. The judicial system was a mess. Nobody knew what court to file a suit in, and it was different in every county. The Constitution provided, for instance, that the governor couldn't succeed himself. There was no lieutenant governor. Also, there were outdated provisions. In the 60s, a lot of civil rights things were changing, but Florida's Constitution still held that schools had to be segregated, that mixed-race marriages were illegal. Here, Ms. Atkins further explains why it took so long to introduce a new Constitution. Finally, in the last half of the 1950s, Governor Leroy Collins made it a priority to get the Constitution overhauled. But he had a problem, and the problem was that the legislature which was the only body that had the legal ability under that constitution to revise the constitution, that legislature was dead set against changing it because one of the big features of the 1885 constitution was the districting plan of the legislature. It set up all the districts, and of course at the time they were all in northern Florida, or almost all, and it made it very hard to give to change the representation. It said that no county could have more than three representatives in the state House of Representatives. If you are Dade County in 1885, you don't need more than one. Uh, and if you're Leon County, where Tallahassee is in 1885, uh, maybe you need a couple. But decades later, Dade County has <laughs> millions of people, and Leon County has, I don't know, 100,000 in the, in the mid-50s. Here, Ms. Atkins tells us who would lose power with the introduction of a new constitution in the 1960s. Over the years, between the late 50s and the mid-60s, it was being chipped away a little bit of this, what they called the pork chop gang, the North Florida rural legislators. Uh, they were being chipped away a little bit. The Supreme Court of the United States had said that there had to be one man, one vote in state legislatures. So they were being forced to give it up just a little bit at a time. The legislature finally drafted a new constitution, but the process was held back by the Supreme Court of the United States. On the very day that the legislature was meeting in special session to consider the new constitution, that very day the United States Supreme Court invalidates the latest redistricting plan of Florida and says, you are not legal, you're not constitutional, you need to go home, and we are going to come up with the next plan. We, essentially, we, the federal court, are going to redistrict you. The legislature finally drafted a new constitution that was passed by voters in a referendum on November 5th, 1968. That was Mary Atkins, and I'm Robert Casanello with Florida Frontiers. 
You've been listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. Please join us right here again next week. You can also listen online at myfloridahistory.org or get the program as a podcast. Don't miss the television series, Florida Frontiers. Check your local PBS schedule or watch archive programs at myfloridahistory.org. Production assistance for Florida Frontiers comes from Ben DiBiase and Robert Casanello. The program is edited by John White. Have a great week. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Cultural Affairs, the Florida Council of Arts and Culture, and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund, the Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, and by Florida's Space Coast Office of Tourism, representing destinations from Titusville to Cocoa Beach to Melbourne Beach.